to respect how hard it is to produce food and to produce it in a way that um, is benefiting the planet as opposed to uh, hastening the end of the planet. And so I guess in my own life right now, um, in, a, in addition to the scholarship, I'm trying to model good behavior in my food production. And mm. I'm thinking about my great-grandfather that owned that carnesteria, but didn't think about where that meat came from. I'm thinking mm. about the meat that I sold when I was working behind the counter at my dad's shop. Now I'm actually in touch with that farming and I'm thinking about what it takes, what's the true cost of production. And um, I think my next project, I'm done with the trilogy, but I'm also thinking about um, writing a book for farmers um, mm. that you know, explores these questions and, and contradictions in our practice. I don't have it all worked out, but um, I do think um, that we need to empower consumers to be much more informed um, and much more thoughtful about the, the food that they're eating and the true cost of it. Jason Leviathan. I'm here today with Dr. Matthew Garcia. Uh, Dr. Matthew Garcia throughout his career has been inspired to ask why we as a nation have frequently demonstrated little regard for the people who pick, pack, prepare, and serve the food we eat. Uh, he knows the struggle of food workers personally through his work as a meat cutter and store clerk in his father's meat market and through the lives and experiences of his own uh, paternal grandparents who toiled in the fields of California and prepared and served meals to college students. He's written three books, A uh, World of Its Own, From the Jaws of Victory, Eli and the Octopus, uh, which for him form a trilogy uh, approaching the food industry in America from multiple different places. And so today what we'll be talking about is how does America get its food? Dr. Garcia, so happy to have you here today. Thank you, BJ. It's a delight to be here. And I should say that that last book is in production right now. Yeah, that's, yes. Yeah, I, I should have, yeah, I knew that. It I is written. It. Yeah. it is written. <laughs> yes. And it really exciting. And then, um, is it Food Across Borders, Food Without Borders? I should have written that down, but uh, I'm excited about that coming out as well. Yeah. Food Across Borders um, was a collective of um, writers, uh, mostly young thinkers that are uh, thinking about um, food, culture, labor, and borders. Um, my colleagues, Melanie Dupuy and Don Mitchell, um, uh, basically fellow travelers in investigating food in our, in our society, decided we want to do something um, in a collective edited volume. And mm. it's been really popular. So um, it's not just, it's, it's partly, you know, physical borders. It's the U.S.-Mexico border, but it's also the Canadian border. And then the mm. borders of the body, um, the mouth, uh, the, the colon. <laughs> so yeah. we, we do all of that. <laughs> that's awesome. It's very popular. Yeah. Uh, so that's already out. Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And gotcha. it's very popular. Yeah. gets taught a lot. Uh, recently, London School of Economics said they were using it for some course there that kind of blew our minds. But yeah, it's been pretty popular. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. We'll definitely yeah. include a link to all these books um, yeah. uh, down below. So uh, tell us a little bit. Obviously, I mentioned it and uh, my apologies. My, I can't pronounce English correctly. Uh, my my family always 
likes to make that joke about like I was five years old and I said, mom, the world is full of chaos. So I'm not going to try. And <laughs> right. And I still struggle to this day. I, I'm 33 and I struggle saying compromise. Um, so I, I'm not going to try and pronounce the name for the Mexican meat market. Um, but obviously you grew up uh, within this culture, um, at least very closely tied to it. You have historical roots. Tell us a little bit how you got interested in this topic of how America gets its food. Yeah, so the word is carniceria, and my father owned a carniceria. Um, it was sort of late in his life, and uh, he had been an electrician for General Dynamics, the defense contractor in Pomona, mm. California. And um, during one of the economic downturns in the early 80s, they were either forcing him to move to Phoenix, where they were going to relocate the plant, or take a buyout. And he took a buyout and invested into a carniceria. But that was sort of um, uh, investing in a kind of family-long investment in food processing. My grandmother, uh, she was employed at the Claremont Colleges in Claremont McKenna, before that Claremont Men's. But she was uh, uh, someone that worked in food preparation and made all the salads. And she, actually, to this day, is like the longest employed employee of the Claremont colleges ever. I think she worked there almost 65 years in total. Wow. Yeah. Um, but then and going that's where you went for your bachelor's, right? No, I actually went for my PhD at Claremont. PhD. Uh, oh, my apologies. School. Yeah. yeah. I saw bachelor's. that in there and I'm, I'm connecting. So is that, anyways, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And then the, the, the connection to Carnesaria, my, uh, her father, uh, owned a Carnesaria in, mm. um, uh, downtown Los Angeles in the 20s. And so he produced meat for, um, at that time, a thriving Mexican community that had mm. yet to migrate uh, across the river into East LA to create that sort of important uh, Mexican-American barrio that turned into the Mexican-American homeland in some ways. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, during the uh, mini depression of uh, the 20s, he lost that kind of Um And so my father investing in this kind of city was sort of um, a way of uh, drawing on our history and legacies. Yeah. And and so he owned it for 13 years through my high school years, my undergraduate years that were at Berkeley, and then my graduate years at Claremont. And so um, I worked in high school. Um, I used my summers to work at uh, the, the place, uh, work at uh, Frontier Meats. That's what it was called. We inherited that that title. But most of our our, um, and then I worked there uh, through my graduate years, but most of our, our uh, uh, customers were actually um, second or third generation Mexican-Americans, um, mm. like ourselves, had migrated in the 1920s um, during the, um, the Mexican Revolution, and then mm. were recent immigrants from Central America. And then increasingly Asian immigrants. So we had this really interesting, diverse community and some of the sort of languishing working class white families. So we had this really interesting um, um, cross section of America and of yeah. greater Los Angeles. And uh, my grandmother sold her menudo, which is a um, um, soup, a Mexican soup made of uh, 
the tripe, um, which is the, the cow lining, the stomach of the lining of cow stomach, and it was really wildly popular. We sold tamales during uh, Christmas, which is tradition for Mexican Americans, and it was just a really rich experience. We we lived through the '92 riots in Los mm. Angeles, and there was a Korean um, swap meet across the street. And uh, they, I would never forget, they had guns on top of their roof, you know, pointed at uh, people trying to get in. And our community basically left us alone, did not break the windows, did not mm. do anything. My dad pulled his, uh, I always remember, he pulled his van up on the sidewalk and just waited. And, and we had agreed that if someone came to the door and wanted something, he didn't lock the door and let them come and take it. Yeah. Our community really respected what we gave to them. Hmm. And this was sort of before the era of big box where we had like Costco and food for less that eventually kind of priced us out yep. of the market. Yeah. But this was the eighties and nineties when um, little mom and pop food uh, stores could still kind of provide for the community. So that's a kind of long answer. I'm sorry, PJ, but no, <laughs> I love that. No, I mean, we, <laughs> we can keep going with that if you want to. I, mm-hmm. I love, um, I love that connection. Uh, definitely wanted to ask. So, I mean, it seems obvious to me, but I, I've been wrong before. Uh, is that the reason you went to Claremont? Because that's where your grandma was? <laughs> In part. Um, well, I started- yeah, I would assume. Because <laughs> it's also good. It's also a good school. It's not like, yeah. <laughs> well, I broke their heart. I got an invitation to go to Claremont McKenna, and I ended up going to Berkeley. Um, then. Um, when I finished Berkeley, uh, I had a, actually a girlfriend who became a fiance that never became a, 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 um, a wife <laughs> that was going to UCLA and she was from that area. She was very close to that, that community. So I actually went to Claremont sort of to be close to her and to get an education. And it worked out wonderfully because it allowed me to tap into this history that I just shared. Yeah. And, uh, meanwhile, Claremont made some really uh, well-placed hires that um, accelerated my career. So people mm. like Vic, Vicky Ruiz, who's uh, probably the the most important um, Latina historian um, of the last de- uh, uh, generation. Um, she's mm. recently retired. And then Mike Davis, who wrote City of Courts and some other really wonderful books. But at the time, City of Courts was like loom large. It was a history of Los Angeles, and he's just an amazing scholar. So I was I benefited from their mentorship, and um, it just carried me forward. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Um, so I'm looking at this. Uh, I think a good place to start, and uh, I think I'm still figuring out how to pull exactly what I want when talking about history, right? Because it can be so broad. And uh, I, I was looking at your three books. Can you give us kind of a log line so that people understand uh, how each of those books works in in kind of your overall thought? So like a world of its own, can you give like the, you know, the marketing log line so people understand what that is? And then maybe that can provide the structure for our discussion is that like three tier approach that you have. Yeah. So it's really kind of an accidental trilogy that I realized somewhere about the time I was publishing the second book. But let me explain it. There's a through line. Um, And I think you got it. I mean, I always uh, really appreciated um, the people in my life that were feeding our community and they were Mm. my family. And I never Mm. understood why um, 
society treated them so poorly or they got paid so poorly. So my grandmother mm. and food services, my father who eventually uh, succumbed to bankruptcy as a consequence of those big box retailers. Um, and we were providing a service um, and, and we were all Mexican. <laughs> so mm. why is it that we have so little regard for fruit, food um, producers uh, and providers? Um, mm. And why is why is it that Mexicans always do this work or seemingly always do this work and get have little regard or are given little regard by society? So that sort of formed uh, the questions I, I was uh, answering my, for myself. The first book was uh, a world of its own. Um, I tried to answer the question of how Los Angeles was built on the backs of those food producers. You know, mm. L.A. before World War Two was primarily um, an agricultural town. It was built on agriculture and that agriculture was citrus. And that's why my family moved to that area and, and, and worked in that industry. So it was a, as labor historians like to say, a bottom up uh, understanding of the creation of what we call greater Los Angeles. Los Angeles proper is, is not really Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a, a network of suburbs. And so I studied those suburbs that had citrus growing. And I talked about everything from Yes, labor politics to um, the cultural contributions that Mexican people made, such as uh, theater and music and, and that kind of thing. Um, but then as I got into this, I, I, I continue to ask that question, well, why were they treated so badly? And, and the next book uh, uh, from the Jaws of Victory was, well, what has been done to remedy that situation? How um, have in particular unions tried to help yeah. um, these these workers. So I immediately was drawn to the United Farm Workers um, mm. and asked the question, well, um, if the farm worker movement happened and Cesar Chavez did exist, he did, I studied him in, in, at Berkeley, <laughs> why haven't things changed? Why are mm. uh, uh, farm workers still paid so poorly? And that led me to the discovery um, that the United Farm Workers was successful but a flawed enterprise and it was flawed largely because Cesar Chavez took his foot off the gas um, mm. that around the mid-1970s um, he sort of lost interest in um, organizing farm workers and a union and uh, became more interested in organizing an intentional community some would say a cult and the UFW went down that rabbit hole and I told that story mm. so uh, the way I looked at it was sort of the uh, this question of food and immigrants and labor from the middle rung perspective, like the organizers and to understand this organization. So that led me to the question of, well, can reform come from the top down? And yeah. is there a, a company or um, a figure in the business world that tried to do right by its workers and in particular immigrants and even more particular Latinos? Well, it turns out that in that second book, um, Cesar Chavez, uh, had an alliance with a man, Eli Black, mm. and Eli Black ran United uh, Brands. And United Brands um, was a, a conglomerate that was made up of a lot of things, um, but meat production in the Midwest, lettuce production in California, and uh, most importantly, bananas in Honduras. So he ended up uh, signing contracts with UFW when the rest of the lettuce industry was fighting UFW. And mm. Caesar and him became really close friends. And it led me to this exploration of a kind of top-down study of this subject 
mm-hmm. from a, with a bottom up sort of uh, mentality. You know, he 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 understood uh, the plight of immigrants because he himself was an immigrant. He was mm-hmm. from uh, Poland. Um, and he tried to do things, as he said, with social responsibility. So he hmm. his his ethic for this company, United Brands, was we're going to produce socially responsible food. And it's a tragedy, like a lot of my books, because in 1975, um, oh, he, he paid a bribe to the president of Honduras, the first of two, um, in which he he paid him a bribe to lower tariffs on mm. his bananas to be more competitive um, with his competition standard uh, fruit. Um, and it ended up collapsing the company and he committed suicide in 1975 when he was about wow. to be exposed for this. Uh, it wasn't really a crime, but it was an unethical thing. Right. right? right. Yeah. And so he dove from the 44th floor of the then Pan American building, now MetLife building in Med- Midtown Manhattan. And uh, it's been memorialized. People don't really understand this, but if you've seen the film um, Hudsucker Proxy by the Coen brothers. Is that what it's referencing? (laughs) That's the reference. (laughs) I love the Coen brothers, and that movie was so confusing to me. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So So it's all about business ethics. Yeah, yeah. And so, (laughs) you know, uh, and, and... and United Brands Incorporated may be the most notorious uh, food company in U.S. history, certainly in the 20th century, United Fruit. So United Fruit was behind a coup in Guatemala in 1954. Right. Uh, it had really suppressed unions across uh, uh, Latin America. It, it was written about um, as the octopus or El Pupo um, by Neruda, pa- Pablo Neruda, um, and a famous uh, uh poem and so the unwritten history of united fruit was like how did it end <laughs> and ironically yeah. it ended with this guy who was actually doing trying to do right by the union um at um at la lima plant in la lima plantation in honduras um the union was citraterco he had a lot of respect for the guy who ran it Oscar Gale Varela, and he was also mm. trying to uh, make, and he had made sort of uh, agreements and contracts with um, Cesar Chavez in California to honor farm workers. So, mm. ironically, the most malevolent, uh, odious co- food company in 20th century U.S. Latin American history um, ended. Um, in this like ignominious way, but it kind of eclipsed what was a narrative of social responsibility that was sort of ahead of its time. So hmm. that's a long way of telling you about the tra- trilogy, but I, uh, I'm no, kind of perfect. exhausted just telling you about it. And, and, and I feel, I feel right, that's like a wrap. Uh, we're good. Yeah. yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, so that helps explain the title of the book, Eli and the octopus octopus is a reference to Pablo Neruda. Um, uh, his own poetry about it is um, I'm guessing, or did he, was that an essay? It was, no, it was a, it was a, um, uh, poem. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would expect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and, um, he refers to Honduras in particular as a dictatorship of the flies. And, um, you know, it's more about the concept of octopus. Uh, you know, companies have, worn that label throughout time. So um, Hmm. the railroads in the 19th century, Standard Oil 
in the early 20th century, but also um, United Fruit. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that this company basically controlled all aspects of that society's life, right? Yes. From cradle to grave, um, from how they fed themselves to how they educated themselves. And so what happens when an entire company company becomes a company town, basically? That's what yes. happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you hear about that. Um, it's really interesting. I just want to double check. Um, when you talk about uh, United Fruit, that is connected with United uh, Brands. Like those were the same thing or United Fruit was underneath United Brands? So United Brands was formed in uh, officially in 1970, but it, yes. Eli Black started his pursuit of United Fruit in 1968, okay. consummated the, the the purchase in 69, and it went into effect in 1970. And then from 1970 to 75, United Fruit was nested in under this umbrella, United Brands, which was a conglomerate. Yes. And my book is in part about this moment in U.S. history. It's really important. It's the conglomerate movement. And so yeah. we had conglomerations being formed from roughly about the Kennedy era, era to the early 1970s. And, you know, we've continued to see this happen, but that's when it was, that's yeah. when it was born. And Eli was different from his peers in that he was, he was preaching an ethic of social responsibility. And I thought right. that that was really interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely much earlier than you normally think of that occurring, right? Like you said, mm -hmm. ahead of his time. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me a little bit about uh, multinational corporations. You know, you mentioned that in your work. Uh, and I think people uh, have like a fuzzy idea in their head, but what's a, a, what's a good way to define them? And then what, so basically what are multinational co co corporations and how do they function? Yeah. So multinational corporation, first of all, it's multinations. So in this mm -hmm. case, United Brands fits because it produced um, food in, in Honduras primarily, but not exclusively. There are other places in Latin America they were producing and also in the United States, number one. Um, the second is that, you know, usually it's it's not indicated, but it's assumed that it's a conglomerate. So it's not just uh, someone that's uh, yeah. a company that's producing something abroad and then bringing it to U.S. It's actually doing multiple things by the 1960s yeah. and 70s. So yeah. in our case, uh, they, Morel Meats is uh, producing meat in South Dakota and Iowa mm -hmm. um, in the 1960s under United Brands. It's producing lettuce uh, under the label of Interharvest in um, California, and then it's producing bananas from uh, Honduras uh, under United Fruit. And that uh, company has almost three separate companies working underneath it. But the, the bottom line, the kind of economic health is determined by uh, the ebbs and flows across these companies. United Brands also included the second largest fast food chain in America at the time, A&W Root Beer. It included Baskin Robbins, the um, ice cream maker. So you begin to wow. see that yeah. it's multinational, but it's also multi-corporate uh, in its structure. Yeah. And what we call these companies is subsidiaries as opposed to like one standing company. Yes. And, and so I thought that was interesting to study because Eli Black was uh, pulling levers in one company to 
increase the marketability and the health of another company. So right. he was able to do the kind of deals with Cesar Chavez or Oscar Gale Varela um, mm-hmm. because of what he was doing to erode unions and old contracts, what he saw as outdated, expensive contracts mm-hmm. in the meat production in South Dakota and Iowa. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so Hence in the some octopus. ways, yes, exactly. Yes. So the yeah, octopus yeah. is not just what he's doing to Honduras. Yeah. This octopus now uh, expands over uh, North America as well as Latin America. Yes, it's multiple yeah. legs, multiple things going on. Um, uh, I don't know a, if this. Go ahead. And I think the other interesting thing is it's publicly traded. Okay. So, yeah. So he's he his his obligation is in part to you know the workers, the consumers, but it's the shareholders. Shareholders, which is becomes very important because yes. stock price matters a lot, and stock price manipulation matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Terry Pratchett, and maybe this isn't uh, uh, super uh, helpful. <laughs> I find I, I do enjoy uh, fiction as a means of uh, understanding these sorts of things. Um, so Terry Pratchett writes fantasy. Uh, he's a fantasy co- or he was a fantasy comic novelist. Um, and uh, but he did one about a post office that became outdated. Uh, it's written in medieval fantasy setting, and they they added a telegraph system, what they call the clacks. <laughs> and what happens in the book is it's about one of the politicians trying to get the post office running again mm-hmm. because the clacks becomes this monopoly, and the guy who's running it is running it inefficiently. And there's a very key moment in the book where the the business is running inefficiently, and one of the guys underneath him goes, you know, we could make it more efficient if we did this. And he goes, I don't want to. I want it to break. I want it to be inefficient because then the government will bail me out, and they'll pay me, and I will take the money they're paying me, and I have a construction company that will do all the repairs. And so I'll actually make more money doing this regardless of how terrible my service is. And the important thing is that he owns the multiple companies and by shifting the responsibility between them, he's playing like this shell game. Yes. Right. Most definitely. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I, you know I don't, maybe that reference is too obscure. I don't know if that'll help anybody, but it helped me. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually very useful. And so I think it allows me to also bring in here, Leon black, who is Eli mm. black's son. Yes. Um, he, he was at, he was attending and finishing Harvard business school when Eli committed suicide but he became the owner of uh, Apollo Global International, and mm. he was recently uh, brought down by um, his relationship to Jeffrey Epstein. And he mm. um, allegedly trafficked a girlfriend and mm. uh, abused two women. But the thing about Apollo was that um, it is the uh, um, private equity. It's it's the private equity world. And so the private equity world is really invested in sort of breaking companies yeah. in the, in the um, name of sort of greater efficiency. Yeah. Um, concerns of the uh, employees or consumers be damned. And yeah. it's all about you know, the profit and the, and, and the ways in which you just described, right. So break it to make it, make the money, but for a particular group of people, Eli's different. So he, he was arguing, and this is true of this period of time. Like they, they sincerely believe that, uh, United fruit would be stronger, um, for 
uh, its relationship to these other subsidiaries in this larger company and that the whole ship would rise um, if he managed the whole thing. And so bigger was better. And, and they were still invested in, in building things and creating things and producing things. So um, he did he did worry about how many bananas he was producing. He did worry when a hurricane blew through and destroyed um, his mm. crop. Um, he did worry when the Teamsters went on strike and uh, destroyed his lettuce harvest. Um, so I think that's that's a different period. Like the yeah. 1960s and 70s was still a period when these these conglomerates existed, but they still were vested invested in producing things as opposed to breaking them so that a, a, um, a small group of people could make money. Yeah. Um, and I think that leads to a question that I wanted to ask you. Um, how does the corporate world structure the food industry and how much of that structure is intentional and how much of that is unintentional? Oh, I think it's very intentional. And the question is, what's the motivation, right? Mm. So are you talking about today or are you talking uh, about the past? <laughs> yeah, good, good. Great. Great follow up. Uh, so uh, why don't we start in the past? And if there and if you have any uh, observations for today, I would love to hear those. Yeah. So in the past and I'm talking about the 1960s and 70s when I'm mm. writing about Eli, it's about greater efficiency. It's this belief that uh, one man. Um, usually a man, almost always a man, um, could organize uh, a variety of companies, a food company in this case, mm -hmm. and be more efficient together as opposed to separate entities. Mm -hmm. And there was a real faith that, you know, that company would be more profitable, would uh, uh, be good for the shareholders, good for the consumers. Um, there'd be cross-fertilization in terms of packaging, branding, all of that stuff. In fact, United Brands, the second part of that title, Brands was really important because they actually tried to market the very um, well-known, very highly regarded concept of United from United Fruit and and then cross-market and started trying to market the lettuce as United uh, Brands or, excuse me, United Fruit uh, um, um Lettuce. In fact, they use the brand that United Fruit is known for, Chiquita. And for a short time, Chiquita lettuce existed in, in the world. So, hmm. so there's this notion like branding, um, managing budgets. You know, when one's yeah. down, maybe we can take from the other one to lift that one. And, and that's, that was the motivation. Today, what we see is, uh, you know, Market shares, for example, of meat production, that's something I'm really invested in. You know, during the pandemic, we went from 64% uh, of our meat uh, being produced by um, four big companies. Uh, yeah. Some of them multinationals set outside the United States, JBS in Brazil, um, mm. but running the meat, meat uh, processing in Iowa and South Dakota now. And then the very plants that United Brands and Eli owned, yeah, um, and they went from sixty-four percent to eighty-five percent of our meat today in in mm. the span of three years during the pandemic. Why that yes. happen? Well, it's because they controlled the the production of that meat, the delivery of that meat, um, and also there was uh, uh, the 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 sickness and the death of workers, and mm. um, that affect. 
that was that effect was felt by small uh, slaughterhouses as well. So they were able uh, to really consolidate their power mm-hmm. and uh, to get a stranglehold on on the meat we eat today. And so we're in actually far worse place than we were before COVID because um, of the intent on really strangling small producers of meat and Mm. you know there's huge environmental consequences of this so most of that meat is produced in um these uh confined feedlots um where there's more methane and more erosion of of uh, greenhouse gases going in erosion of the the ozone layer and, and heating of the planet as opposed to um, the creation or the existence of multiple producers across the land that are doing managed grazing and really kind of sequestering more carbon than emitting carbon. And that gets to why I'm farming. I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I'm like, that but, sounds familiar. Yeah. But it's a Sisyphean um, uh, effort. And, you know, <laughs> we lose more days than we win against those big conglomerates. But the conglomerates yeah. are really invested in just consolidating and making right. money. And they don't care about the workers' health. They don't care about um, the health benefits or, or, or negative uh, consequences to the consumer. And they certainly don't give a damn about the planet. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to make sure. So in the course of three years, did you say it went from 64% to 84%? 85% of our meat. So if you go you know, to the I market trying, today. I was trying to get that yeah. 1%. Yeah. <laughs> so you go to the market and you buy, even if you go to, you know, your local kind of cooperative, yeah. more often than not, that meat is really, really bad for the planet. It's usually coming from these producers that have exploited mostly immigrants from yeah. Asia and Latin America that are working in these hell holes um, and really outdated uh, processing plants that Eli Black owned in the 1960s and 70s. Mm. Yeah, I um, and I have bought from local farms. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting because like uh, uh, I live in a multi generational house with my parents, and they see the price that I pay for meat because I've watched like food. I've watched Food Inc. I see. I've seen the inside of those plants, and it's uh, it's not appetizing, right? Um, yeah. And so I buy from local farms, and it's the the it's so much more expensive. But that's right. just a, like, that's how much effort meat really takes, right? Yeah. Um, uh, my wife and I were just talking about this the other day, like how crazy it is that uh, meat is subsidized by the government so that a cheeseburger, the reason it like, it doesn't make any sense from any way you look at it, that a, a cheeseburger could be $1.20 and yeah. then like a head of lettuce is $1.60, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. How, like what, like when you look at the effort required for these two things, like there's lettuce on the cheeseburger, like what, what yep. just happened? Right. And it's yeah. just, um, so th- I, this is, uh, I mean, this is part of the reason why I'm, I'm excited about this, but, yeah. uh, yes, I'm, uh, very passionate about this as yeah. you can tell. Um, not as passionate, passionate as you are though. <laughs> Um, really, it's amazing. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's amazing what what you're doing. I love. I love your work. Um, we've we've talked quite a bit about that top down approach. You know, yeah. um, uh, why don't we talk maybe a little bit more of that? You know, a world of its own kind of that whole idea of what does it look like for workers? Right. Um, for a worker in that period of time, for the 1920s and 30s, when migrants mm-hmm. were coming to create the foundation for um, citrus industry that really made Los Angeles before World War II. 
Um, it was sanctuary. You know, this was a mm. time when the Mexican countryside is raging in war. Um, it's a revolutionary war. Um, it's a war for independence. Um, it's also a war that was precipitated by U.S. investment and um, mm. earlier versions of uh, corporate investment and exploitation um, in the mines in northern Mexico. And, you know, they they pressed upon um, Porfirio Diaz to, uh, you know, break up collect uh, farming collectives and to hand land over to these uh, U.S. corporations and force people into these kind of really onerous um, work environments. So the, the revolution was not a product simply of, uh, you know, Mexican angst and anger and passion. It was very much uh, its proximity to the United States. But mm. by the 1920s and 30s in, in Southern California, um, those Mexican people came to Southern California and they could make money for the things they knew well, which is they knew animal husbandry, they knew farming. They had a skill set that was seen as unskilled, but it was deeply it's- important and essential to the grounding of that uh, industry. And the only reason why they were uh, paid so poorly, they were housed in such crappy uh, housing is because there was partly so many of them. And number two, that this country had traditionally paid farm workers poorly, starting not with not paying them at all in slavery, and then coming mm. out of slavery, right, having indentured uh, contracts. And so his, the history of farming in this country has always been about suppressing what is an essential component of farming, but as labeled an unskilled one and worthy of only low pay. So one of the like ulterior motives for the work that I do is to recognize the skill sets of the the very robust and very important skill sets of farm workers in our food economy. Yes, are you and familiar? That was true. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, are Are you familiar with the documentary uh, "The Biggest Little Farm"? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, teach I think it. of I teach that. It. <laughs> oh, you you teach it? Okay, I teach it. So there, it's that's a funny. I mean, just a side note. It's like there are Mexicans in that film. Yeah, but the font of knowledge and inquiry is all coming from these white urban transplants to the countryside, and they're drawing very clearly on Mexican knowledge, deep knowledge and skill, yeah. but it's yeah. never really acknowledged in the film. They're there. But no, it's never... all Alan, right? It's yeah. all Alan. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know. I was like, they've been there. Like he's been at the farm for 20 to 30 years and that's his only mention. Like he's been on this land. And I was like, yes. that seems like it'd be important, you know, but yeah. you know, you just get so, swept up in the cinematography and you just keep going. Right. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's too easy. Beautiful- it's a beautiful movie. I like it because it does show you the challenges of farming. Farming's yeah. hard. Right. Um, but well, that's why I thought of it. Does, it does, it's serious skill set, like you're yes, saying. For sure. Yeah. Um, but it does something that I argue is always there. It's hiding in plain sight. And that is the reliance on immigrant labor and more specifically in Southern California, Mexican labor. And so my first yeah. book, A World of Its Own, is yeah. like there was a world of its own existing side by side, these bucolic landscapes and beautiful oranges yeah. that uh, that world depended on. And it was these Mexican colonias and Mexican culture that made yeah. it all possible. 
Yeah. And so that was the intent of my first book. And it's really the intent of all my work is like to show there's this thing that's hand, hand, um, existing in plain sight all along in our food right. system, which is the incredible skill sets that immigrants bring to this system and that are necessary for, for feeding um, our communities, mm. our yeah. society. Yeah, and I think that's uh, even growing up that it was just something that was part of my culture that uh, gardening is simple, right? Farming is simple. It's hard work, but it's simple. And then, I mean, I've started a garden in my backyard and I'm like, this is really complicated, right? Like people look at digital marketing and it has that flash and pizzazz that it's got. It's it's hard and to understand those kind of things. And sure it is like every every skill, you know, you requires knowledge. But it's it's just as complex to do gardening well, which, you know, talking about how much time I have goes to show you I'm not doing well with my garden. But the <laughs> right like these are these yeah. are serious skills. Um, yeah. And I think that's important. Uh, yeah. You there's a couple of uh, historical connections that I, I'd love to touch on if you have time. Um, so you before World War Two, you have L.A as this agricultural hub. And then with World War II, I'm assuming what changed is the advent of Hollywood. So Hollywood's always there. Um, yeah. Even before World War II, but it, yeah. it, it accelerates in part because of the new economy and um, the industrialization of, of, of entertainment production. And it just grows, right? So, mm. um, and then just weather has something to do with it too. You can shoot all year round. You have the backlots there, and so yeah. But but that's only one part of LA. LA also grows because of the war industry, and so there's mm. tire production. There's uh, uh, all kinds of combustion engine uh, production. There's there's um, the, the the other thing that happens is that uh, the port of LA becomes important for importing goods after the war and that connection with Asia. So now the port of LA is the most modern port in, in the world. Um, and the innovations that are going on there are really important. Mm. And there's a lot of focus on that today because of the, uh, supply chain, but, um, right. you know, that all opens up after world war two. And so it ultimately transforms Los Angeles. I mean, San Francisco has the natural Harbor, but LA builds its Harbor, um, in, the early 20th century and then that becomes uh the the major port um for importing uh goods and and materials um from the pacific after world war ii you know and that is sort of the um the spoils that the united states wins as a result of winning world war ii mm. so la changes um yeah. as a consequence of world war ii but before that um, it was very much an ideal place to grow certain types of uh, uh, fruits and vegetables. And um, citrus was really, really popular. You know, bananas are important from Central America and people are embeating, um, uh, eating them in Boston and New York. And uh, uh, there's songs written about it. But that same culture for citrus happened um, before World War II, and it was an overland migration or, or uh, transportation of that citrus fruit grown in warm Southern California and sold in cold Iowa and eastward. And mm. so you talk about marketing the, the company Sunkist, right? Yeah. Um, 
sun kissed uh, was a way of reminding people during, you know, winters that there's this beautiful place out here called California and we produce these wonderful fruits and wouldn't you like to live here? And in fact, that uh, becomes one of the reasons why people move to LA and transform it and make it the kind of uh, industrial juggernaut that it becomes after World War II. Yeah. Mm. That, it's so interesting because uh, people just, uh, and, and forgive me, this is just my ignorance speaking, people that just don't think of LA as an industrial town, right? Yeah. Is that, yeah. Like as that general cultural uh, ignorance, you know, <laughs> it's like everyone yeah. always thinks Hollywood. Um, I knew a little bit about like the farming in the area. Um, and yeah. so that's just really, you don't, think about that you don't realize that until like you said like i mean just recently we're like oh we need all that right well need yeah. but we we right. use all that um really uh fascinating and you, well, you, you threw go ahead well you just think in my own life my father he started working for general dynamics which was mm -hmm. an industrial weapons munitions producer based in southern california in part yeah. And so that's just part of a larger network uh, that gave people jobs and created that foundation. Um, there's a really good book um, called uh, Iffy Hollers, uh, Let Him mm -hmm. Go by Chester Himes, that talks about the black community drawing on this industrial uh, uh, economy of Southern California during World War II, which I teach. Mm -hmm. So the industri the industry part of it has always been there in L.A., and it really uh, accelerated during World War II. And mm -hmm. so um, some of the ways in which our, our minds are clouded about what L.A. is, um, is partly because of the kind of image making, um, media making uh, industry of, of, of Hollywood. Yeah. But it also is a kind of hangover of um, the, the notions of uh, Southern California being this bucolic place created by the agricultural production in Sunkist. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. we're like, <laughs> no one, no, like, if you ask people to write down their first five impressions of California that pop into their head, no one's going to be like factories, right? It's going to be beaches. <laughs> it's going to be Hollywood movie lots. Uh, that makes total sense, right? Um, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Uh, you drew a connection, and I think this is really important to point out uh, between slavery, indentured servitude, and then uh, immigrant labor. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, there had been a acceptance of agricultural work um, as being a cheap uh, labor. And so when um, the Civil War happened and after the Emancipation Proclamation and then the 14th Amendment, there these these producers still wanted to have their cheap labor. And so that's when um, companies became very invested in uh, contract labor from uh, the East. So they were mm. importing uh, Chinese uh, workers um, and it kind of overlaps in part with uh, slavery, but it, it's accelerated after um the uh, after Civil War. So that's why things like the Chinese Exclusion Act come along in 1882, where, you know, the, people start to get nervous about all of these uh, uh, Chinese mm. immigrants and 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 the industries are becoming de uh, dependent on them. So then that's when uh, and 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 we've always been this kind of 
a country where we need our immigrants, we hate our immigrants. We need our immigrants, we hate them. And so in the wake of the 1882 uh, uh, Exclusion Act, then these producers still want their cheap labor and they start to go south and they say, oh, well, there's all these Mexicans that know how to work the land and you know have all these agricultural skills and they're right there. And so there's a lot of contracting that goes on. There's actually, we, we often talk about the most exploitative time um, in terms of getting that cheap labor is the Bracero program from 1942 to 64. But in fact, there were contract uh, contracts before six uh, before 42 that brought Mexican workers on temporary contracts, crossing the border, doing the work, and then going back to Mexico. And the whole concept of a bracero, it's it comes from the word brazos, and they just basically want their arms to do the work, but they don't want their bodies, they don't want their lives, they want them to go back. Um, recruiters uh, for the citrus forgive industry. Me. How do you spell uh, braceros? Yeah, B R A C E R O S. So it's a uh, it's a way of taking the concept of brazos, B R A Z O, and then um, it's the embodiment of that, or really kind of the disembodiment of that farm worker into arms. And we want those arms up here. Mm-hmm. They want when we're harvesting during the season, when the when the the, the harvest is happening, they're going to work, and then. They're not going to stay around. They're going to go away. Yeah. Well, yeah. that was that was a myth in many ways because the citrus industry was a kind of year-round industry. Yeah. Um, and so that myth was created in ways to um, uh, try to honor or, or or appease those that were worried about the um, in-migration of these um ethnic others, um, just mm-hmm. as they were worried about the Chinese as this racial other. And, but the reality was that these Mexican people were setting up uh, communities, uh, having children. They were crossing racial lines and having babies with uh, uh, you know, white families. I am a product of one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that was actually one of the reasons why I wrote that first book as a world of its own is that there was a separate kind of community and it was a diverse community. It had guest workers like Braceros. It had people that were migrated who migrated during the revolution. Um, it also had mixed families like my family. Yeah. yeah. And they had a separate culture. They had a separate entertainment. So they had theater, they had music and I explored those, those parts of it as well. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so so that's what in fact this this thirst, this need for cheap labor begets is that these all these kind of hypocrisies and contradictions that lead to the kind of diversity uh, in spite of ourselves, in spite of our xenophobic selves, we have all of this diversity, and it's partly in pursuit of those uh, the desire not to work as hard as the people that are doing the essential work of things like farming from slaves to what were then called coolie laborers, the Chinese workers to Mexican birds of passage, as they euphemistically called them, they would come Mm. do the work and then go back to Mexico, fly South for the winter. But the reality is that um, blacks were here to stay. Chinese were here to stay and Mexicans stayed and they've transformed the society in spite of the yeah. fact that we create these fictions that they don't and that they're yes. not needed and that to make ourselves is, comfortable. Yeah. And that their yeah. work is expendable. Mm. It's not, 
<laughs> well, no, yeah, food is kind of basic. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a necessity for sure. Um, so how does that fit in with Cesar Chavez? Because so you, that was 1920s to kind of 1940s. And then yeah. it seems like, you know, you, you um, travel not only in terms of the corporate ladder, <laughs> but also uh, in terms of time. Yeah, Caesar was asking the same questions that I did, except from a different point of view. He's he wasn't trying to understand why this happens and understand the contradictions. He was trying to resolve them, mm. and so he said, "You know, how do I, um, the son of uh, Arizona farmers um, who have no esteem in the society, who are mistreated, how do I bring esteem to them? How do I bring mm. rights to them? How do I let?" give them uh, a leg up on society to, to kind of leverage their existence into something better for future generations. And so he studied past attempts, um, most notably by Ernesto Galarza that tried to organize Braceros and failed. And, and he said, okay, there's gotta be a different way. You know, there's gotta be a way to do this. Um, and uh, that's how he, he happened upon the United farm workers. But he was always ambivalent about a union. Um, mm. He was a part of a group called the community service organization. And the community service organization was all about working with disempowered, mostly Mexican, but not exclusively Mexican, Mexican um, families to leverage the kind of politics and laws um, uh, and expectations of government in their communities to, you know, improve streetlights or to improve mail service or to pave, uh, uh, you know, streets that are unpaved. Um, and it was through those, that work. And he'd do these things called house meetings where he was great mm. in these small settings. He'd go into their homes and he'd talk about, don't you want this for your child? Don't you want to, to not have to, you know, walk on that muddy road? Don't you want more postal service to this community? And then he would, um, make the appeal to government and 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 start making that work together. Um, but the thing that he found was that he traveled throughout California is like the thing that uh, all these communities have in common is they work for in agriculture. And mm. so um, and he and he discovered that the thing that held them back the most was that there were these uh, temporary workers that were allowed to be paid less, could be sent back the moment that they rose up and asked for more. These were Braceros. And the first thing we need to do is end the Bracero program. And then once we end the Bracero program, then we're free to create a union. And so that's why he ended up doing uh, working working towards unionization. But he was sort of ambivalent about that. And it was actually another immigrant group, Filipinos, that were more radical, that were more studied in terms of philosophy and, and mm. ideology. There were many of them communists um, who said, no, nah, what we need to do is confront the owners and we need to form a union. And that's also why he decided to go the, the labor organizing route. But he never sort of reconciled that. And that's why, you know, in the 1970s, um, you know, you think farming's hard? Organizing farm workers is harder. <laughs> and when <laughs> and when he discovered that, you know, he started to take his eye off the prize and mm. and started to go down a route, which I don't think is a bad intention, but, you know, which was 
why don't we just own our own land? Why don't we produce for ourselves? Why don't we organize into smaller pods? Um, hmm. That was at the headquarters in La Paz. The problem was that he had made a commitment to the farm workers that he organized. The problem was that he was he had created a union. He had started something, and he he wanted to redirect it. And a lot of the organizers wouldn't allow him to do it. So there was yeah. tension, and it just kind of pulled the whole thing apart. By 1978, it's a shadow of its former self. Yeah, and that's, and then of course that leads to your third book, Eli and the Octopus, which we kind of started with, and I, I really enjoyed yeah. that. Um, I, I kind of as we wrap up here, I, I think that the last question I have for you, and again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, what are some possible solutions to the problems that face us today in the food industry? It's really tough. I mean, <laughs> you know, I. It's a question that I think about a lot, and I mm-hmm. guess I, if you try to take it on all at once, the whole thing, it can just be overwhelming. And so for me, I've sort of gone back to my roots. We we started off talking about my um, farming. I own livestock. Um, I raise right now 17 cows. I have 13 sheep. I do manage grazing, and there's a real debate about um, – how to solve the problems that are confronting us in terms of climate change, in terms of food bottlenecks and meat bottlenecks. And there are some people like out there, like Jonathan Saffron for who just say, we need to stop eating meat and meat's bad. And uh, you know, what that does is it inflames the other side that, you know, particularly the, the Trump side that, that says, uh, you know, they're trying to take away our burgers. Um, (laughs) And I also think it dumbs down the whole, issue of how do you deal with complex systems the food system is a complex system and so there's a saying um, amongst uh, livestock producers it's not about the cow it's about the how and so for for us that are engaged in managed grazing there is a lot of practice and a lot of evidence that if you manage that the the ways in which um, ruminants graze and that's what you call sheep goats, uh, cows, animals that take in grasses and they produce energy and they ultimately produce meat. There's a way in which you do it that actually sequesters more carbon dioxide than emits Mm. it. Um, And I think that requires us to, uh, first of all, respect the heavy labor that it takes to grow food. Um, The second is that we need policies that support that kind of approach, which runs counter to the kind of big box uh, corporate uh, production that I've talked about. So in some ways, um, I'm I'm talking about Eli's idea of doing things socially responsible through like a big corporation as a Mm -hmm. fool's errand. But I think it's Mm -hmm. worth kind of walking through why it was a fool's errand, which is why I made this uh, wrote that book Mm -hmm. uh, that will be out sometime either this year or early next. Um, And so, you know, I think we need to eat less meat. I think we need to buy, spend the uh, more for our meat um, as you are doing PJ. That's good. Um, But that's a recognition of what meat really costs. It costs in terms of like the skill that's put into it, the labor that's put into it and the cost to the planet. Right. So, if you're buying meat that's produced by JBS, that's the company, the Brazilian Bra- company. Brazil, that, yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, you're contributing to uh, the destruction of the Mississippi Delta, um, where all the food that those cows eat mm. is being grown um, in, you know, these monocultures of soybean and 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 what have you. Um, there's pesticides putting on there. There's uh, uh, the, the support of uh, um, big companies like Monsanto that's supplying um, that seed and, and those mm. inputs. Um, and it's contributing to the destruction. And it's also not a true representation of the cost of that meat. It's also flying in the face of the kind of uh, benefits of rotational managed grazing that uh, small producers like myself are doing. So I think mm. we need to go back to eating locally. We need to respect that labor. And that's why, you know, the, the, the film that you mentioned, um, uh, the biggest little farm, um, is really important. Ultimately, you know, I could say what I want about the invisibility of the Mexicans that they rely on, but the message of that movie is really important, which is to respect how hard it is to produce food and to produce it in a way that, um, is benefiting the planet as opposed to, uh, hastening the end of the planet. And so I guess in my own life right now, um, in, a, in addition to the scholarship, I'm trying to model good behavior in my food production. And mm. I'm thinking about my great-grandfather that owned that carniceria, but didn't think about where that meat came from. I'm thinking mm. about the meat that I sold when I was working behind the counter at my dad's shop. Now I'm actually in touch with that farming and I'm thinking about what it takes, what's the true cost of production. And um, I think my next project, I'm done with the trilogy, but I'm also thinking about um, writing a book for farmers um, mm. that, you know, explores these questions and, and contradictions in our practice. I don't have it all worked out, but um, I do think um, that we need to empower consumers to be much more informed um, and much more thoughtful about the the food that they're eating and the true cost of it. That is uh, a beautiful summation of what we've been talking about today. Thank you so much for all the historical context for that. Uh, for our audience, if you appreciated the depth of discussion or learned something, please like, share, and subscribe so someone else can too. Uh, Dr. Garcia, it's been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you, PJ.